So Dan, sun's out. We've got the budget next week and we've got a bit of a roadmap on the way out of this, bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. What are you most looking forward to in the spring? Yeah, it was funny, isn't it? January felt like it had about 50 days to it this year, but all of a sudden we skipped through the first three weeks of February and here we are. But things I've been focusing on are tennis, haircuts, and having a pint in a pub garden will be things that I would very much looking forward to. But unfortunately, my 40th birthday, which is on the 22nd of March, looks like I'm not going to be doing much by the way of celebrations on that day. So I'm going to have to try and defer that somehow. Another virtual pub experience. I'm also a March baby, so I'm going to be enjoying a virtual party, I think. But yeah, garden parties probably has a slightly new definition now in this world. So garden, two households standing outside. But I'm looking forward to those when we can manage them. Yeah, we're totally redefining the whole notion of a party now, aren't we? And like meeting up with like one other person is like a massive cause for celebration, which I suppose is good. We're just setting our sights a little bit lower. Indeed. Anyway, so with the budget coming next week, we thought we'd have a little chat. We thought we'd bring in our colleague, Sir Steve Webb, to talk a little bit about what might be coming along next week. Absolutely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. To discuss a few ideas what could be coming in the budget, we're delighted to welcome back our colleague, Sir Steve Webb. Steve, hi. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Hi, Steve. Welcome back. So, Steve, last time you joined us, which I think was towards a year ago now, we talked about the government in crisis, but you also were talking about some of the things that you were, I guess, starting to look into here at LCP in terms of the impact that the restrictions and measures that have been put in place might have on people. So, I guess, helpful and interesting to start with to hear what you've been up to for the last nearly year. <laughs> so it's like my annual performance appraisal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and ask me which will give you a score. <laughs> Yes, I celebrated a year at LTP a week or two back. And what I've tried to do, amongst other things, is try and research across the breadth of topics of interest to colleagues. So it's sitting down with Dan, looking at strategies for drawdown, looking at the impact of coronavirus and insolvencies on the funding of the PPF to personal finance topics, the state pension and so on, and, and the whole gamut, really, which has been great to have the freedom to do that. And I think something I flagged a while back that I wanted to work on, but it didn't at the time have the data, is what I described as this idea of accidental savers. So whilst a lot of people have had a miserable pandemic, economically lost jobs, been furloughed and so on, a significant minority have held up their income. If their, their jobs remain the same, but haven't been able to spend it. And I knew I wanted to look at this, but I then discovered that in October, we did a survey of 10,000 employees, along with our colleague Heidi Allen on the financial well-being side of the house. And that asked people, amongst other things, whether they were saving more, whether they were saving less, what they were spending more and less on. So we've used that as the basis for a report that we're putting out on Sunday. That is interesting, Steve. Can you give us any tasty little snippets ahead of the production of that report? I don't want to blow all of our secrets, but I mean, I suppose one of the interesting questions is, first of all, the scale of all of this. So the Bank of England, between March and November, households accumulated over £120 billion pounds and wow. extra saving. You know, and we work in pensions, we kind of get a bit blase about billions, but I still think that's a lot of money in a short time, more since then, no doubt. And amazingly, the bank reckoned that in a normal period, if you accumulate a bit of extra saving, 5% gets spent. That's what normal looks like. 
the difference between us spending 5% of our 120 billion and 50% is massive in terms of the economy. So in the run up to the budget, thinking about who's got this money, what they're going to do with it is really interesting. And one of the questions we ask is, well, where has the money gone? What have you done with it? And an alarming number of habits sitting in current accounts, which you can kind of see yeah, in the short term, you kind of see some of it's running down debt, which is going to be a good thing. You know, credit card debt has come down. But we haven't yet translated this into long-term savings, long-term investment. And I think that's a key policy challenge. We're always told people can't afford to save. Well, here's a bunch of people, size to be revealed on Sunday. Here's a bunch of people who really can afford to, but how do we get them to? Because it won't just happen. And I guess it's tricky as well, because as you said right at the start, Steve, this isn't everyone that's going to be in this position. So you've got a huge chunk of the population who are not in this position. You've got a TBC chunk of the population who are in this position. And I suppose it's then determining policy that's friendly to both sides and doesn't discriminate. Yes, I think you're trying to, it's an ill wind mostly, of course, the terrible pandemic, but there's this minority of people who've had a windfall, if you like. Our research is about employees. There's also evidence of retired people spending less. I mean, you know, the, the cliche world cruise and all that sort of thing hasn't happened we've got to be sensitive obviously the people who are actually really cash strapped and struggling but you can have policy that works for people who've had the windfall and a lot of this could be workplace based they frankly the employers will know roughly who these people are because by and large that people who've perhaps not commuting anymore have the sort of jobs you can do from home that kind of thing i suppose it does tear down the argument for looking at averages a little bit, presumably, because of course you average all these people that have had really terrible outcomes over the last year, all these people are saving a lot more. And the answer is something that's probably not that interesting, but you've got to kind of get beyond that, I suppose, haven't you? Absolutely right. I mean, when you look at the, there's this figure called the savings ratio, as you'll be aware that they publish, and it shot up in the second quarter of last year, and then it fell back significantly in the third quarter, still way above where it was. But of course, that's a mix of people who are now unemployed, more indebted, really struggling, and these folk who are actually saving like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> so policy to catch the fair wind for the people who are in that position has got to be sensible, really, and employers have a crucial role to play in that. So I assume there are some accidental savers that have noticed that their bank balance has gone up or they have paid down debt, and that's good news. How many of the accidental savers do you think have realised that they've accidentally saved a lot? I think what's striking is there was one question about whether people felt more in control of their finances and roughly half of our accidental savers said they felt more in control so it was a slight sense that they thought about it they perhaps made plans on the basis of it and half of them it just kind of happened to the cash sums might be the same but the behavior might be quite different and do you think steve in the run-up to the budget do you think people in whitehall the chancellor etc are sat there thinking about this group in particular in terms of how they might approach this year's budget i guess it's quite a quick reaction to it wouldn't it be well, I mean, it's such huge sums of money, you can't not really. I mean, in a sense, the Bank of England are saying that most of their scenarios are based on a very minimal release of these savings. And if you think about last August, remember Rishi Sunak eat out to help out in the famous picture of him as a waiter in a restaurant kind of thing. That was all about stimulating the economy's patriotic duty to spend money. And obviously, if lockdown is eased more gradually, we'll get less of that. But I think there might be a hint in the budget of a once you can get out there, you know, not quite spend, 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 but a real. And that's the paradox. For the individual, the optimal strategy might be the very opposite. It might be run down your debt, build up a short term savings buffer, put some money in your pension. But if we all do that, then the economy suffers, the paradox of thrift and all that kind of stuff. So it's not, it's a tension, really. The individual strategy might be to save. But what we probably want consumers collectively to do is spend. Do you expect then something in the budget that almost similar to the sort of eat out 
to help out idea where you spend money, but you're saving versus what you could be spending. That's sort of something like that again, or is it more individual policy, more to do with the sort of overall, is it a top-down policy tax related, or is it a kind of from the ground up, we want you to go out there and spend money? I think we might see some more sector-specific stuff, a bit as with restaurants and so on. You know, identify sectors that either have really been hit or where actual spend, extra spending money would be most effective. I remember you know, I was a minister in the DWP and the DWP used to run the line that said giving money to poor people is a very good way of boosting the economy because poor people spend it. Treasury never liked that line. They never let the DWP publish it. <laughs> there is an argument that keeping the universal credit 20 quid going for six months longer, which is what they rumour is going to happen, that's money that would just go straight around the economy, whereas helping more senior workers, you've got big gardens and big houses, you work from home, you've saved on a season ticket, that probably isn't a priority. And I guess just sticking with that sort of theme and in the budget, I've been wondering whether we're likely to see extensions of the various measures that were put in place over the course of the last year. Is that your expectation? Or are there some that you think are easier to continue than others? Or what do we know at the moment? Yeah, I think because it'll only be the 3rd of March when we get the budget, there are still going to be businesses who've got cash flow issues for, for months to come. So there's talk of the self-employment income scheme being extended and furloughing, probably scale, just keep nudging it down. But So I'd be very surprised. I mean, it's talk of the stamp duty holiday being extended. That may have been a good idea. But I think the odds of the tax being turned off on the 1st of March are pretty slim. And other sector-specific things potentially over the summer then? So essentially more eat out to help out. I don't know what else would be obvious ones. Travel, tourism, those sort of things being the obvious targets for those sector-specific stuff? Yes, and it could be, or it could be specific to firm size. There's some suggestion that bigger industries have been able to borrow actively have survived. And the risk is that we lose the whole independent sector, the smaller shops, the smaller businesses. So that, again, things like business rates relief and all of that kind of stuff, I suspect we'll see a lot of targeted stuff. Sometimes these targeted things just don't work, though. They're just so complicated, the rules and bureaucracy are so, they have to be careful not to have a thousand schemes with no infrastructure to deliver. Keep it simple. Okay. Should we pivot a little bit, talk about pensions and the budget? Because that's always a heavily debated area, isn't it? Of course, one where there's a lot of various proposals and things. Why don't you give us a sense of what the main issues at hand seem to be these days there? Where do you come out on some of those? I suppose the Conservative manifesto said that they wouldn't raise the headline rate of income tax, VAT or national insurance. And that's the biggest three taxes, I think. So if he needs to raise money, maybe not in this budget for 2021-22, but yeah, to plan over the medium term, he's bound to look at tax breaks. Because paradoxically, Cutting pension tax relief is not seen as an income tax rise in the way that raising the basic rate would. So every chancellor comes in, gets a briefing note that says tax relief costs 37 billion if you measure it one way, or 52 billion if you measure it another. Yeah, depends how you measure it. But they look very closely at this. Now the reports at the weekend were it's just too soon. He's not going to do something on the 3rd of March or the 6th of April. But there is talk of an autumn budget, and I think it's possible we could see. I think maybe even a consultation document is too much to expect yet, but over the coming months, some looking at this huge amount of money that we spend and the familiar debate, do you just use this as a cash cow, which is what successive governments have done for years now, reduce the lifetime allowance, reduce the annual allowance, all that kind of stuff, just to get half a billion here, a billion there? Or do you stand back and say, well, what are we trying to achieve through this? Coming back to our saving and investment point, we know that there's a bunch of people who are not going to save enough for the retirement and they're not the people who are getting most of the tax relief. So at some point, a government's going to want to think, can we get a few billion out of this and spend what's left more efficiently? 
that might be flat rate relief. It might be a different rule for DB and DC. And there's some straws in the wind that that might be coming. So that's something to look out for, I think. I guess thinking about so the idea of a let's just not rip the whole thing up and start again, but let's really take a step back and look at this fundamentally. Do you think the current sort of governmental system and the phasing of budgets and the regularity of budgets at the moment enables that sort of really deep dive to take place where you've got such a rotation that actually everyone's almost everyone's playing catch up all the time? Or have I misunderstood that? Well, there was a plan at one stage to have a budget that was this year's stuff. And then an autumn statement or equivalent, which was a long-term strategic chance to step back and think and events get in the way and so on. But something like pension tax relief is so fundamental, it's such huge amounts of money, it matters to individuals, it matters to the exchequer, that it, we really have got to have a proper look at it, not just keep filling around. And one opportunity I think that may arise is that there's a niche issue about the low paid and pension tax relief. So if you're a low-paid worker in a scheme that delivers tax relief through what's called relief at source, so you put your money into your personal pension out of your post-tax income, HMRC give you basic rate relief, and then if you're a higher-rate taxpayer, you claim it through the tax, uh, tax, uh, tax return. That's relief at source. And you get that even if you're a non-taxpayer. So if you're on 10000 a year, you put your money into your pension, HMRC give you basic rate relief, even if you're a non-taxpayer. Whereas the other sort of arrangement called the net pay arrangement which occupational pension schemes usually use, you don't get tax relief on 10000 a year because you're not a taxpayer. So your money comes out of your pre-tax pay, there ain't no tax coming off it, so it's just whatever you put in. So there's a million plus people in this anomalous position where they are non-taxpayers. If they were in relief, it's sort of they get tax relief, but they're not, so they don't. So the government's been consulting for a while on how it might fix this problem, and it's not easy to fix. The proposed reform, one option they're looking at, would be to move everyone over to relief at source. And at the one level, that looks just like a boring, tedious administrative tidying up. But I think the government could use it for something much more profound. So if everyone's on relief at source, everyone pays into a pension out of their post-tax income, everyone gets topped up currently at the basic rate. But once you're doing that, once you've effectively separated the pension contribution from your own personal tax position, the top up could be more for low earners or... 100% on the first £1,000 and 50% on the next bit and 10% on it. You could do all sorts of clever things. So you could suddenly use DC. Instead of higher rate taxpayers getting more, you could scrap the bit where higher rate taxpayers claim the extra relief through their tax return. So you've abolished higher rate relief DC. You could then tilt what's left much more towards low earners. Who really, yeah. So you could kind of see the budgets next week saying, we're going to move to relief source for DC and everyone, you know, says, well, I've no idea what, what any of those words meant. <laughs> yeah. But then by the autumn, they're saying, well, hang on, we've now got a clever way of doing DC one way. We'll put a sort of Chinese wall between DC and DB because we don't want everyone shoving from one system to the other to maximise on the tax rate. So we have to think about that a bit. And then we do something with DB, lower annual allowance or something. So because abolishing high rate relief for DB is horrible, but you do want to get some money out of the DB side. So maybe you have a DB solution and a DC solution. I could imagine that being an option. What was it, the 2015 budget where we talked about pension freedom and choice? So how does that tie in with a wall between DB and DC? Does that remove some flexibility for people age 55 in a DB scheme? It's tricky. So yeah, so 2014 budget, 2015 implementation of pension freedoms. And one decision that had to be made was DB transfers, do you allow them or not? And the government, to be honest, it was almost an afterthought at the time because pension freedoms was a DC thing. You don't have to buy an annuity. 
And then it's, well, okay, not many people will want to transfer out of a gold standard DB pension, will they? So we'll allow them to if they do. It turned out slightly different. So, yeah, I don't think you'd ban DB transfers. But I think, ironically, if you could still get high rate relief in DB, but not in DC, what you probably want to do is avoid people going the other way. Uh, now, you can't trivially go the other way, but you don't want employers setting up pseudo DB schemes for high earners to get higher rate. It's that kind of thing I think you'd be worried about. Does that then bring it in? What I'm thinking is, how does that then sit alongside things like lifetime ISAs, where obviously the tax relief you got there works quite differently, almost works as you were alluding to a second ago, from what I understand, where there's a certain amount that's just matched come what may, isn't it? And obviously it's within the ISA wrapper. And at certain salary levels, that might be more or less attractive than certain type of pension tax relief. Have I got that right? Well, you're absolutely right that you have to think in the round and not just think pensions here and forget because these things called lifetime ISAs over here because you get kind of arbitrage and people doing one or the other. I mean, lifetime ISAs are a funny hybrid in my view because on the one hand, we've got help to buy ISAs. So there's already a product to help young people with a deposit. And you've got workplace pensions. So you've got millions of under 40s for the first time saving the workplace pension. And wrapping the two together has created this kind of rather messy hybrid where either you invest in equities stocks and shares ISA, which is great for your pension, but volatile for your house deposit. Or you invest in cash, which is what most ISAs are, which is fine for your house deposit. But then if you never switch out of your cash ISA, you're still investing in cash to be 60, which is terrible. So I really kind of worry about these kind of hybrid products. But you're right, Dan, thinking through what all of this means for the different ways people can invest their money and where people are going to chase different sorts of relief is crucial. You can't just pick and choose. As a wider point, I guess, you're sort of saying it, it, incremental changes to systems versus a big bang kind of overhaul. I mean, that's been the obvious point to make for a while, hasn't it? But recovering from the sort of situation we've been in does present one of those rare opportunities to government, I guess, where you maybe can get away with or you have the political capital to actually say, right, let's have a proper look at this, which you wouldn't normally get the chance to do. It does. And I mean, you know, we've got a new government-ish and it's only just over a year in. They've got a clear enough majority. If you can't do it a year into a new government at a time where everything's been looked at, when will you ever do it? Absolutely. Cool. Okay. Should we cover the sort of state pension stuff quickly? So I guess the two issues there, age and triple lock that are sort of oft talked about, where do you think we are on those at the moment? Triple lock was in the manifesto. So they'll be reluctant to just ditch it. Excuse me. It was in the manifesto, so they were reluctant to just ditch it. So far, they've decided to keep it for April 2021. They don't need to make the decision for 2022 for a while. The challenge will be if earnings bounces back. So if we had furlough, 80% pay and all the rest of it, and then by this summer, wages are up 4% or whatever, which is kind of what OBR are expecting, then suddenly do you put pensions up the following April by 4% when inflation might be one or naught point something that would be the difficult call i think but it is still a powerful vote there are more pensions than ever before higher percentage of them votes than anybody else it's still a tough call to get rid of it and ironically our sensitivity to spending a billion pounds has just been so doubled if keeping the triple lock rather than breaking your promise cost you 780 million pounds this year i made that number up but whatever something like that is that so difficult really is that national debt's two trillion or something. Ironically, it may be that they just ride out this blip. The other thing they could do is fudge it, smooth it, say, well, we promised the triple lock. Nobody saw the pandemic coming. So we've averaged it all over two years. So over two years, you'll get the higher of two and a half percent twice or earnings or inflation. And most people, I think, would shrug their shoulders. I think we might see some modification of that, maybe not outright abolition. But on pension age, I mean, 
we've already got 67 coming in 2028 and that's only a knock-on effect on private pensions 68 they haven't legislated for a new timetable so at the moment 68 is still 2046 there's no way it'll be 2046 it'll come forward but we don't know how far yet and they do another review in this parliament so i think you know if your age begins with two your pension age is going to be in this set so steve just a moment ago you mentioned national debt of two trillion and i guess the other sort of very big area in the budget is kind of how do we pay for all of it? And I suppose, do we need to? Do we need to pay for all of it soon is another question. I mean, so there's an argument that says everybody in the world has been affected to a greater extent. Interest rates are historically low. The UK is locked into kind of quite low long-term interest rates. So, hey, what's the problem? The worry, of course, is they won't always be low and we're very vulnerable if rates do rise. It's a small percent of a very big number. So I think the feeling is you don't hammer taxes in year one of a recovery to choke it off. But you need to demonstrate some sort of medium term plan. And again, you're hemmed in. If you can't raise income tax, you can't raise national insurance, you can't raise VAT. So I guess the shopping list of things the Chancellor might look at is if you look at what does history tell us. So first of all, they tax new things things that haven't been taxed before. So I still remember the budget where they introduced a tax on air passenger duty. We didn't use to tax plane tickets. We do. I remember the same budget introduced a tax on insurance premiums. It used to be nil, or probably eventually 20%. So new taxes on new things. And the obvious quote, new thing is online spending, but online spending tax. And we keep hearing about you know, Google tax and all the rest of it. But in principle, taxing online spending, which are all the more of to help the bricks and mortar retailers, perhaps cutting business rate. Yeah, something in that space seems very likely, though difficult. You just do it all from Luxembourg. It's a challenge to actually do these things, but in principle, so taxing new stuff. I think taxing complicated taxes nobody understands, like CGT and that kind of stuff. Again, there's always a lobby that says, oh, it's bad for entrepreneurs and all the rest of it. But the capital gains tax regime is very, very favourable, even relative to income tax. So you could imagine, again, things that nobody understands, entrepreneurs, relief and all this kind of stuff. So capital taxes, I think we can expect to see green taxes, perhaps come back to, but inevitably, oh no, it's not about revenue raising, it's about saving the planet, brackets, it raises X billion pounds, so, so green taxes. And all these kind of things, complex technical stuff, stuff that happens gradually, freezing, freezing allowances, I think is very, very likely for next year. So for April 6th, they've already announced They've announced the personal tax threshold. It's been legislated. Four parliaments voted on it in the last few weeks. So it would be astonishing to change his mind a month before the new tax year. But beyond that, freezing is incredibly attractive to a chancellor. You just don't do anything. Nobody can't get money illusion and all the rest of it. You just leave the allowance at 12,000, whatever it ends up being, for four years. I mean, you do it for the whole parliament. And although inflation, when inflation is naught point something, you don't get much money from freezing. But cumulatively, you freeze the tax allowance, the tax thresholds, the national insurance thresholds, the 50,000 child benefit tax cut off. You, know, you freeze everything that moves. And before you know it, you've got billions. It's funny, actually. David Smith in the Sunday Times yesterday was using his column to sort of make that point and draw a bit of a parallel between the situation that the Chancellor Geoffrey Howe was in in the early 1980s, which I thought was interesting just because I'm at that point in the series four of The Crown when it's very much focusing on that same period of time and then talking about some of the economic issues there, obviously a lot of unemployment that period of time and a pretty dire situation in some ways. But he makes the point that freezing allowances back then in the early 80s was a very powerful tool because of how high inflation was. It very quickly was a really pretty serious tax. Anyway, the David Smith's argument was that Rishi Sunak shouldn't follow Jeffrey Howe's playbook in terms of raising taxes at this point, and it should come later, was what his take was. 
as I say, I think freezing is not for 21, 22. And it's a very gradualist, even if inflation recovers to the target rate of 2% or something like that. It's a, it's a gradual squeeze rather than a sort of sledgehammer. The question I was going to ask, Steve, some of the things you mentioned, like the online sales tax, that's a big new thing, isn't it? So what should we actually look out for in the budget? Presumably they wouldn't suddenly announce a fully fledged policy to start soon on that, or is that what we should be expecting? Or would it be a consultation or would it be a straw in the wind or something? How do you see it? I'd be surprised. I mean, a consultation takes forever if you're not careful. Buying stuff online is not new. They must have been looking at this for years. And I think the only reason we haven't had it so far, it is just really difficult because the companies kind of only exist as bits and bytes. But it's actually really quite hard to tax some of this stuff. And you've got to avoid everyone basing themselves in Dublin or wherever to avoid the tax. So I suspect they've been talking a lot to the online retailers and to the bricks and mortar retailers. And just So we could see, I think, an announcement of a tax from 21, 22, 23, something like that maybe some fine consultation on the administrative detail but if they're going to do it at all you just wonder how much longer it's going to take really so so you think they could come out and hit us with the policy obviously coming for the next tax year but next week that could i would have thought so i mean if you think of the amount of money that's flowing through online retailers at the moment every wasted year (laughs) serious money even a couple of percent of what we're spending online is a huge amount of money so you talked steve about learning from history or potentially looking to history is there anything that you think we might be sort of learning or picking from abroad so different approaches globally to tax and just generally to paying off public deficits we're not very good i think in the uk at learning from around the world and i mean yeah at one level we're all in a different place we're not part of the euro we have level of national debt's different to others it would be nice to think that we could learn from some of the countries that have I think, more progressive tax systems, for example. I mean, we've got some anomalies like national insurance that stops at pension age. I think increasingly there's already a million people working past pension age. We've got to pay for the cost of making population, social care and all the rest of it. It's increasingly difficult to see why someone who's in paid employment past pension age is paying in less than their colleague who's under pension age. So some of those kind of things I think we could see. But we are a bit of a strange outlier because in a sense we don't have a Scandinavian kind of model, high tax, high welfare state, but we don't have a sort of American model, not that America particularly low tax, but lowish tax and limited state. We say the classic British voter wants Scandinavian welfare for American tax. <laughs> Indeed. Well, one of the interesting points on that, actually, I did see a really good graphic the other day from Our World in Data, who've obviously become quite famous during the pandemic for their sort of COVID-related stats, but on a completely different tack. They did one on the amount of tax revenue lost to tax havens as a percentage of, I don't know, total revenue or GDP or something like that. And the UK was actually one of the highest percentages around the world. I guess that's what will happen when you've got a couple of tax havens on your doorstep and there's complications with the EU and stuff. But that kind of surprised me, actually. But maybe that's kind of what you're saying, is it? There is some issues there. Certainly are. And I mean, the United Kingdom is in charge of quite a few of these tax havens to a greater and lesser extent. It is a classic staple of the Chancellor to say, oh, and we'll raise a billion from clamping down on tax evasion, tax avoidance, and so on. It's almost a given. But you kind of think, well, how is it that every year they get another half a billion or a billion? Because basically, they just open up another one over here kind of thing. So I think the challenge is, so a really popular tax was the sort of the non-DOMs tax from a few years ago. and Nobody likes a non-DOM, do they? They should pay their fair share. I think one one thing that probably should be done is taxing empty London properties, that kind of thing. Because one of the nice things about taxing properties is it's kind of quite hard to hide. 
you can move money and capital around the world, you can move yourself around the world, but a dirty great brick building in the middle of central London is pretty obvious, I think. So I do think that, that we might see a bit more of, of those kind of wealth taxes, non-resident wealth taxes, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, the challenge of the tax haven and so on is a lot of this is very, very secretive, really. I don't know, Steve, whether this is just me being more and more interested in what Rishi Sunak has to say and that sort of thing, or he's clearly been more visible to the public in the last year. There have been lots more announcements. He's taken action a lot more regularly in between sort of big bang budget meetings and announcements, that sort of thing. I guess I'm just wondering whether, do you think we have a better idea of the insights? I know you've sat in government, but do you think we have a better idea of the insights of what government's thinking because of this more regular contact? And therefore the budget has almost less surprising messages. We sort of know where they're going with most of this. Or do you think actually there could be some surprises because though we know a lot of what they've been thinking about related to COVID, there's loads of other stuff they would have been thinking about that we have no idea. It is strange because traditionally, certainly the sorts of amounts of money that he's been announcing in little statements would have warranted a whole budget in the past, sort of 10 billion on this programme, or indeed programmes where he just doesn't even bother saying how much it's costing, but it turns out to cost 10 billion or whatever. That's pretty unprecedented. I guess it's the background stuff, as you say, Mary, it's things like are they thinking about reframing pension tax relief or whatever that hasn't been in the headlines? I mean, I've been astonished in the run-up to this budget how little speculation has been on cutting high rate relief and so on. It just hasn't been there. I think because the assumption is they've got no bandwidth, but at some point they will have, and somebody in the background is no doubt working on this thing. So we might well see a lot of stuff that's been parked suddenly now as the economy gets going again, as we focus on COVID, perhaps eases a bit, hopefully, some of this stuff, we might see a flurry of activity. And I don't think we yet know. I mean, Rishi Sunak's got a financial background, obviously, which really helps. He's got a, an astonishing eye for image. The branding, the Rishi signature and the glamorous photographs and all the rest of it is just kind of nice. as a ministerial colleague, my jaw at the floor every time. Now, Pretty Patel's apparently got a brand and pretty and all this sort of stuff, which I think we can ignore as long as some meat behind it. But if it's all just essentially the leadership bit, that would be a worry. I wanted to come on to green taxes and stuff, but actually while we're on that topic of the, just the politics of the situation, because it is quite juicy, isn't it? I mean, there's obviously the sort of ongoing popularity game among the sort of most visible, most senior members of the of government and suggestions at various points that Rishi Sunak was even getting a bit more popular than Boris Johnson himself, which I guess is never a great position to put yourself in if you're in his shoes. So is that just a story for the journalists to latch on to? Or do you think there's any truth to that dynamic being an issue there? I think if you're the Prime Minister having a Chancellor who 15 months ago was a junior local government minister or something, it's pretty helpful. I don't think anybody assumed it's about to make the leap to Prime Minister. I think most people think as long as Boris remains reasonably popular, the job is for as long as he wants it. So in a way, he's probably a bit less insecure about all of that. So I think politics is a bit frustrating, really, because at least you haven't got the sort of the remain leave split in the same way. I mean, whatever you think about the issue, it's not is he going to promote remain, is he going to promote leave as that kind of seat has died away. So that's got to be a good thing. I shall try not to be partisan, but it's kind of it doesn't look unfortunately as though the most able individuals are necessarily in the cabinet. You can see people and you look at them and think it's me in any other job, they wouldn't still be there. So you do kind of worry a bit about whether people are still there on merits or not. A purely personal view, not the view of LC. <laughs> <laughs> So carbon tax, Dan, you wanted to come back to? Yes. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating issue, isn't it? Again, I suppose, Steve, does it fall into the bucket one of those things that's been talked about for an awfully long time, kicked around, but no one's really grasped the eye? I mean, I guess it's 
come up even more recently. I think Janet Yellen, in one of her recent interviews with The Economist or something, has been quite vocally in favor of it. So it's maybe coming onto the agenda in the US, potentially. Mark Carney, I guess, who's had influence here, has been quite vocal about it as well, I think. So, I mean, what would it take to really get that into action, do you think? I guess rather than have an all singing, all dancing carbon tax, what they've tended to do is individual initiatives in the energy sector or renewable subsidies on the one hand and so on. The big challenge for government, I think, is that some of the big emitters are domestic energy and stuff like that. There's horribly regressive pensioners at home. We're all at home now, but pensioners at home with the heating on all day. I remember 30 years ago, government lost a rock solid seat in a by-election because of the 88.5% on domestic fuel or something of that sort. So in a way, a carbon tax as such is quite, you end up having to compensate people and put benefits up and all of that's really quite messy. Whereas I think more targeted green taxes are very likely because they sound as though they're COP26, this year, all that kind of stuff. I think we'll see further announcements in that space, more subsidies for electric cars. Big issues are things like getting domestic heating over to hydrogen and all that sort of thing. So I guess those are the space where you can make a real difference. And I do think subsidies really do change behaviour. I'm old enough to remember the move from leaded to unleaded petrol. It's hard to remember that all petrol was leaded and suddenly they had a pump discount for unleaded petrol and within three years or something virtually all was unleaded and just the price differential did the job. So I think you can get very substantial change in behaviour pretty quickly if you just get the pricing right. So discounts rather than charges effectively? Put it through as a discount. It is both because what happens is the differential between leaded and unleaded you sort of don't need anymore once it's all unleaded and then of course you just jack it back up again. (laughs) And that point about the carbon tax being regressive, I guess that does balance, you've got to balance the general public mood with that as well, I guess, because I suppose you get to a certain point where the mood overwhelms it. I mean, I guess today we're probably maybe we're getting to the point, maybe we're not where the sort of classic Daily Mail headline could still be a vote killer, if you like. They could still find ways to turn that into a very negative headline that would cost votes. I guess at a certain point of public opinion swing, that's not possible anymore and the public's more generally behind it. So it's just a question of waiting for when that tipping point is. The thing that's astonished me for years now is petrol duties. So not that many budgets ago, they wanted to put, I think it was a penny or something ridiculous on petrol and the Chancellor couldn't get it through because Robert Halfon and kind of White Van Man and all of that and The Sun and all the newspapers have just become fixated on the idea that motoring is too expensive, petrol is too expensive, and it's an attack on Middle Britain to put petrol duties up. Well, if you're worried about carbon, you might think that petrol should be more expensive, and yet politically that's really very difficult to make even very modest changes. So that's another case where you get your economics textbook out, you say of course we should tax carbon more, negative externalities, all that sort of stuff, and then you encounter the Daily Mail and the Sun and your scope for manoeuvre is really very limited. So Steve, as we start to wrap up, that's been such a fascinating discussion. What do you think would be the one thing that you want listeners to take away from today? I certainly think we need to be looking out in the budget for a whole series of revenue-raising measures coming down the track, not for the 6th of April, but a plan with its freezing tax allowances, complicated capital gains rules and so on. It's not going to be the eye-catching stuff that was in the manifesto that they won't want to break, but it doesn't mean that they won't be raising. We'll be paying billions of pounds more in taxes in the coming year. We'll just have to be a bit more careful of spotting where the money's coming from. Okay. Indeed. Magnifying glasses out then, yeah. <laughs> And Steve, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this whole area? I think the political constraint on what economically rational thinking would suggest is tougher than it's ever been, actually. 
the time was a budget was sacrosanct. If you voted against the budget, you'd have to resign the whip, all that kind of stuff. And now chancellors can do, they want to put a penny on national insurance for self-employed, a penny on petrol, and they're worried that they can't get it through. So on the one hand, we'd like big, old stuff, redistributed stuff, green stuff, whatever it is. And actually, the chancellor isn't a free agent. He can't just present the budget to a great class of commons and they'll just nod it through. It's not that world anymore. I guess we like the big bang stuff, but not when it applies to us. So that's the problem. <laughs> Fascinating. Steve, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV, podcast, any of that sort of thing? Well, obviously, I can commend our forthcoming Accidental Savers report. Absolutely. Which will tell you how many there are and who they are and what they're going to do about it. I've been doing a fair amount of non-fiction reading recently. And actually, something it's a bit off topic, but I just read a book about some citizen investigative journalism the organisation called Bellingcat and how they managed to use the online world of everything's just kind of out there, YouTube videos and tweets and so on. And the astonishing way that you can use what's out there to work out who shot down an airliner or who was firing chemical weapons in Syria and so on. And it's a whole area that I hadn't really thought of. And they see a blurred photograph and they put it on the internet and someone geolocates it to within 50 yards and someone else says, oh, wow. In the background, it says this in Syrian, and that means it must have been on this day. And it's just a whole area I've never thought about. But certainly in the world we're moving into, using the resources that are out there to learn what's going on is going to be a whole new fruitful area. That's really interesting. Was that a particular book then? He said Belling Cats. It's called the group. We Are Belling Cats, I think. We Are Killing Belling Cats. I might check that out. I love a bit of investigative journalism. So, yeah, we <laughs> should yeah, check that out. Yeah, definitely. Cool. <laughs> All right, Steve, thanks so much. That's been a really good discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks, Steve. And that's it from us for this week. Join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.